Welcome. Hi. I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hello, everyone. It's Mickey here. You're listening to Wikipedia, and this week on the podcast, I'm stoked to bring to you the conversation that I had with Professor Dorothy Sears. So Professor Sears and I discuss her research into time-restricted eating, metabolic health, prolonged sitting, and breast cancer risk. Professor Sears also talks about how she got into this field of research and what her research, along with others in that collaborative sense, has discovered about the risk of breast cancer and the timing of our food intake, other lifestyle factors that contribute to breast cancer risk, and the importance of avoiding prolonged sitting for metabolic health. Lots of really interesting information in here, guys, and I think that you'll really enjoy it. So Dorothy Sears is a professor of medicine at UC San Diego School of Medicine, and her research focus is on obesity and risk for obesity-related diseases, including insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and cancer. Her approach incorporates dietary and behavioral intervention, systems biology, metabolomics, epigenetics, and other genetic-related analyses in humans and rodent models. So her goals are to identify and characterize genes, metabolites, biochemical pathways, and behaviors that regulate and or are biomarkers of cardiometabolic disease risk and which can be used as novel targets for disease risk reduction therapy and or diagnosis. Now all of that sounds super complicated, our talk is not. We keep it super interesting, practical and really dive into the take home measures that you will get from research like Dorothy. So please don't think, oh my goodness, all of those really big words, how am I going to understand it all? This is completely accessible information and Dorothy does a great job of explaining everything. So we will put in the show notes links to Dorothy's research and Dorothy herself. And before we kick off, team, I'd just like to let you know that uh, Mondays Matter kicks off on Monday the 2nd of May and CART opens for that this Sunday for those people who aren't yet on the waitlist. If you want to get a sweet deal though, why don't you jump onto my website, mickeywillardin.com and click on Mondays Matter to join the waitlist so you get a good early action offer there. And you know what? The best way for you to support the podcast is to head over to your podcast platform, hit subscribe, tell your mates, increase the awareness so we get more people tuning in to hear information like the things which Professor Sears is going to share with us today. All right, team, you enjoyed this conversation I had with Dorothy as much as I did. Professor Sears, Dorothy, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me today about your research in intermittent fasting, sedentary behavior, and, um, and what we know from a health and, and um, metabolic perspective, because I understand a lot of your research and collaborations are in that area. And it's interesting, I heard you on a podcast just a couple of days ago, actually talking about how there is this sort of things converge and time might be, time and circadian rhythm might be the, the link between 
the areas looking at sitting time, sedentary behavior, uh, time restricted eating, screen time, and and how all of these things might converge into some actual sort of general understanding or principles which we might be able to use from a health perspective, you know, in the long run. But I'm really interested to just hear you sort of elaborate a little bit more on that. Firstly, though, can you just, I came across your name like a few years ago, actually, when I listened to Ruth Pattinson talk about intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating and breast cancer survival and and what a potential sort of benefit of, of time-restricted eating in, in that particular population. So can we just sort of uh, take a step back and before we get into that, can you explain how you got into the research around intermittent fasting and um, and its health benefits? Sure. So Ruth Patterson and I were collaborating on a large NIH grant that she had secured, uh, and it was uh, the theme was called trans transdisciplinary research in energetics and cancer. Mm. <clears throat> so the theme of the research had to do with anything related to energy, whether it was physical activity or diet or weight loss, and that. And and our uh, center was primarily focused on breast cancer. And so I came on to the group as um, one of the animal model researchers uh, on this large team. We had four large projects. And so we developed for our part, it becomes relevant for the topic, we developed a a postmenopausal mouse, an obese postmenopausal mouse model so that we could use that mouse to um, study um, why postmenopausal women who have overweight or obesity have increased risk for cancer, breast cancer, and other cancers. Uh, and then what can we do about it? That's how we came on to uh, came to know each other through the team. And um, along the way, as we were doing that, Sachin Panda had published in his trial in his from his lab the first time restricted feeding studies in in mice. Um, there was one other group at Northwestern who'd done it, uh, a similar study, but uh, Sanchin Panda's lab is really the one that uh, took off with it. And um, Ruth had heard him give a presentation. She thought, well, one, can you guys, you mouse people, do this in the mice? Let's try it out. And in, because uh, Sanchin had only used male mice, so would this work mm-hmm. in postmenopausal overweight obese mice, females? And then also, let's start doing some pilot studies um, in humans. And so we, uh, that's how I joined the team. And as far as looking at, you know, how the biology of how this might work, um, I was brought on to the human team because I was familiar with the, what we call biomarkers or what is in the blood that we can look at mm. to, to assess the health benefit of these eating practices. So we started, before we looked at the breast cancer cohort, we started with a large um, U.S. national population called N. Haynes, and we extracted the student we were working with, Catherine Marinak, who is now professor, assistant professor at Harvard. She extracted the data from about 2,300 women in the N. Haynes database, and they had um, what are called 24-hour food recalls. So these mm. are time-stamped self-report, granted, um, self-report records of eating patterns. And that was when we first saw evidence that the uh, women who were fasting for longer periods of time had better glycemic control and reduced inflammation. Then we went to the cancer survivor data data set. Can we? Can I just ask you? So, first of all, your model was in postmenopausal, sort of overweight, obese 
mice. What is it about a woman, if we translate that to a human um, uh, or just us humans, um, what is it about being overweight and obese that places someone at increased risk of breast or any cancer in that postmenopausal phase? So what do we know about that? So for one, we know that obesity is associated with insulin resistance. So this is the when your body no longer listens very effectively to the hormone insulin, which is a nutrient storage hormone released after we eat a meal, primarily in response to, to carbohydrates or glucose that's in the meal. Um, so as an individual becomes more obese, they generally their bodies are less and less responsive to that hormonal response. In addition, there's inflammation in the adipose tissue, but other tissue, the fat tissue, the liver, the muscle, and whatnot. And this inflammation actually also interferes with insulin action. Um, so together, it's kind of a two-hit um, from this uh, two-hit uh, deficit in our ability to metabolize nutrients and store nutrients properly. Estrogen, as it turns out in women, is very protective against insulin resistance and inflammation. And so when women go through, so we have this advantage over men, because when we're younger, uh, we are not um, accruing risk uh, the, as much as men are of equivalent weight mm -hmm. and obesity. But once women go through menopause and the estrogen levels drop, we lose that protective um, the protective effects of the estrogen. And women have a very sharp increase in cardiovascular disease risk, um, type 2 diabetes risk, and also risk for approximately 12 cancers that are mm. that women can get. Mm. Men are also increased risk for prostate, but women can't get that one. Yeah. So why this model is so important is that uh, breast cancer, uh, the obesity is a factor in increasing breast cancer risk only in postmenopausal women, not in premenopausal women. So we thought the model has got to be in that model, in something that looks like those postmenopausal women. Mm -hmm. And actually, as I mentioned, in, um, in the mouse research field, most research has been in males only. Yeah. Partly because the menstrual cycle is very complicated and it interferes with metabolism. And to monitor it in mice is, you know, I don't want to get into it, how you do, how you do that. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it's very, um, it's very tedious. And so a lot of mouse researchers have just not studied female mice at all. Yeah. And NIH is changing that. But um, in addition, so um, in female mice, if you feed them a high fat chow, uh, they just don't gain weight. <laughs> they, mm. they, they, um, they're resistant to obesity. They're resistant to insulin resistance where the male mice, um, they fatten up really nicely. Yeah. If you take the ovaries out of the female mice, then they, they start to get fat. They even accumulate greater fat than the males do on the same, the same chow. So it turns out to be a really nice model for us to, to study breast cancer. How old are the postmenopausal mice? How long do you have to sort of you know, like I, I, I know mice are used obviously in science because their lifespan is so short. They go through things yeah. very quickly. Like, yeah, do you just so take it's not a natural out, menopause? You know, there you go. <laughs> yeah, it's not. Yeah. Mice yeah. actually never go through menopause. So you can oh, age a mouse. If a mouse is two years old, that's really old for a mouse. Yeah. Um, they never get menopause. 
So yeah. they never go through menopause. So what we do, we have two models that we use. One is a very abrupt model. We just surgically remove their ovaries. And so boom, yeah. they're in menopause, you know, right away. Uh, there's another chemical treatment that we can use that takes about, um, I believe it's 10 weeks or so. You treat that mouse with this um, chemical, just put it in their food. And then it gradually, the ovaries go through the process as if they were a female going through menopause. And then they oh, maintain their ovaries. So some people like that model better. Yeah. Um, we have done our time-restricted feeding studies in um, breast cancer, this breast cancer, using both models, the ovaryectomy yeah. and in the chemical treatment. And the benefit of time-restricted feeding on breast cancer is evident in both. It's the same magnitude of benefit. Yeah, interesting. So, Dorothy, you mentioned that looking at the NHANES data, just the um, observational research that you sh- you saw a, a benefit in women who fasted for longer periods. So what, mm-hmm. and then you progressed to looking at pilot trials. Is that correct? Uh, so then we went to the breast cancer survivor cohort, yeah, yeah, cohort sorry, yeah. from the well yeah. study, the women's healthy eating and living cohort. Yes. Um, so maybe I'll I mention that one. So that one was a study based at UCSD, but it was a multi-site randomized, two-arm randomized controlled trial of a dietary intervention. It was. Um, the participants were had to be stage one through stage three A to be enrolled, and then they were randomized either to a control diet or to a diet where they were asked to eat lots more fruits and vegetables, and it mm-hmm. was also a low fat diet. Mm-hmm. So they followed this um, diet for um, uh, four years, and then they were followed up seven years for uh, breast cancer events, and then up to eleven point four years surveillance for all cause mortality. Unfortunately, the low-fat diet with more fruits and vegetables did not provide any advantage to the women compared to the control group. Um, so uh, that was disappointing, and there are some thoughts on why that would be. But what uh, in this kind of a diet study where you're monitoring what people are eating, are they complying with your intervention, and what are the controls eating? You have 24 food recall records. So these women yeah. for four years were filling these forms out. So we had three recalls at baseline at year one and year four. So we had of the whole cohort, we had over 30,000 24-hour food records to go through because there was no benefit of the intervention they were on. We were able to mix all the participants together and see when was their last calorie at night and when was their next calorie the the next day. So we're calculating how long is their overnight fasting time and how does that relate to uh, breast cancer recurrence, all-cause mortality, and also that glycemic control, hemoglobin A1C, and, mm. and some other factors, like we looked at sleep as well. Mm. And what did you find? In the women who fasted for less than 13 hours each night um, over the entire period of time, that they had um, 36% increased risk for recurrence of their breast cancer compared Mm -hmm. to the women who fasted at least 13 hours a night. So when we talk about the timing, like 16 hours of fasting really needed, I would say no, it's not. Um, Particularly when um, practice for a longer period of time, um, I think we need to consider in designing these studies and the actual intervention and what might be public health guidelines. I don't think 
um, that we need to be recommending um, extremely long periods of fasting to get health benefits. Yeah. And when you're talking about fasting, so was anything included, uh, was anything consumed, any beverages or anything like that outside of that sort of eating window? Or was it just water? Like what, what, what did you constitute fasting? Yes, that's a really good question. So we debated that. And so we said, well, anything that's 50 calories um, or more mm-hmm. would be um, eating. And anything less than 50 calories, that, that we would not count as a meal mm. or a caloric intake event. Um, but then we started thinking about, well, what could you eat and have it be less than 50 calories? Well, you could eat a lot. You know, you could have yogurt and celery sticks and you could get under that 50 calories. So then we said, OK, we need to take it down a little lower. So we said, okay, if anything, 25 calories or less, mm. uh, we wouldn't count it as an eating event. So again, this is observational. So we aren't asking the women to do a certain thing. We are observing what they were doing. So we had to make a cutoff. Yeah. So we said, okay, 25 calories. So that was our cutoff. Yeah. And so we said, okay, what time did they have that last meal of more than 25 calories or anything? Didn't have to be a meal. Could have been a cookie that was more than 25 calories. And that that would count as their last eating event. And then we would count how many hours till the next morning when they would eat their next calories. Okay. So if you were having black coffee or tea with a splash of milk, then you would you you may well fall inside that 25 calories, yet you'd still be correct. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's yeah, because exactly. a lot of a lot of the um questions that people have around fasting is you know what const what can I still consume and and still be considered fasting and I guess out right. there in sort of social media world you've got people recommending things like bulletproof coffee and whereby you have coconut oil and butter or cream sort of added to coffee, which might be several hundred calories, but because Mm -hmm. insulin is kept low, it is still, people will still say it was fasting. But in your research in this particular project, you saw the real benefit came from when pretty much very, like very little calories was consumed. Now, I certainly think that there are nuances about what you're eating. Um, that Mm. matter. But Mm -hmm. there is extremely little evidence about what that is. So we tend to be a little more conservative. So in our in our in our recommendations, when we do intervention, so we want to test in humans, whether the fasting, this kind of fasting regimen is beneficial what we ask women or our participants to do, mostly I'm working with postmenopausal women, um, we ask them not to eat anything after 8 p.m., mm-hmm. nothing. So not even just a splash of cream that might be less than 25 calories. I think it gets yeah. confusing. So we want the message to be simple. Yeah. No calories. You don't have to read a label. You don't have to count calories. Um, just no calories after 8 as the latest time point. Yeah. And then try to go at least 12 to 14 hours of time without eating. Yeah. your next cal and until you eat your next calorie. Um so we would permit uh black coffee, mm. even artificial sweeteners we would allow uh, mm-hmm. because they are non if they are non-caloric. Mm-hmm. Um so anything that doesn't have calories, but yeah. just a little bit of cream that has calories so that wouldn't be per- permitted. But if you got up in the morning and you wanted to have a coffee with you know stevia or not, maybe that's I don't know if stevia has any calories, but um you know artificial sweetener yeah. 
um, or a Diet Coke you want to have, then we would permit that. Yeah. And so did that observational research then um, form a hypothesis for a clinical trial? Yes. Yes. So we, so we came up with the third, you know, our 12 to 13, a 12 to 14 hour window that we would do an intervention based on the well study and also what we had observed in other epidemiological studies. Um, how we come up with the 8 p.m., nothing after 8 p.m. is uh, partly practicality and partly um, evidence basis from our research. Mm. So we found that eating after 6 p.m., has detrimental effects on hemoglobin A1C, uh, blood pressure, other factors. And we've shown this in in almost 20,000 individuals at this Mm. point, um, just observational studies. Um, But there is also a detrimental effect of eating after 8 p.m. compared to not eating after 8 p.m. 6 p.m. is a difficult window for individuals to stop eating. Mm. Um, especially people with families. So they're getting, I mean, I'm rarely home by six when I come home from work. So um, people come home, they're doing the homework with the kids or making dinner or whatnot. And so we just, we think for the practicality, it makes biological sense. And it also is more practical to use 8 p.m. as a cutoff. Now, if individuals in our study want to stop eating earlier, they may, but we do not um, support them cutting off at like 2 p.m. or 3 p.m. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because I think um, over the last couple of years, there have been a couple of studies looking at like an eight-hour window going from, or maybe it was seven hours of eating from 8 till 3 p.m. and outside of weight loss, there is a lot, there appears to be a lot of metabolic, or um, I say a lot, like insulin control seems to be better, the beta cells seem to work more efficiently, the yes. um, lower blood glucose after a meal, but it's so impractical for so many people who might, you know, what about the adherence? Because you can design a perfect trial, but if people, or have a perfect regime, I suppose, but if people aren't able to adhere, then, you know, how good is that really? Correct. Correct. So our bodies have what's called a circadian clock and a rhythm of how um, a, a 24-hour rhythm for many things, but for mm. metabolism, um, there are peaks of when we can metabolize food uh, very efficiently, and then naders of when we don't. And they tend mm. to, they not tend to, they do absolutely align with the the light and the dark of mm. the day. So we are the most insulin sensitive and capable of handling nutrients in the morning. And then we get progressively worse <laughs> at handling the nutrients as the day proceeds, and particularly into the nighttime. There are multiple reasons why that is, and one of them is the beta cells have a circadian rhythm of which they're secreting the insulin. Um, um, the sensitivity of the insulin secretion is um, changing throughout the day. But also there are other hormones that are signaling, uh, that are circulating in our bloodstreams in the nighttime that interfere with insulin action. So, for example, melatonin mm. interferes with insulin action. Mm. So if it is in the dark, let's say it's 10 o'clock and your melatonin is already coming out and being secreted, which that would be a normal, you know, in the range of normal for humans. And you go and have some popcorn mm. at 10 o'clock. So now you're, you're going to secrete insulin because of the popcorn and you've got melatonin on board. So mm. the melatonin is going to block the ability of the insulin to get that glucose from the popcorn out of your bloodstream 
So from a cancer perspective, this is particularly bad because the glucose will be in the blood longer, the insulin will be in the blood longer until the job gets done, so to speak. Mm. And tumors love glucose and they love insulin. Yeah. Insulin is a very potent driver of cell growth. Yeah. So we it's just not a good idea to be eating at night. Yeah. Dorothy, it's an, that melatonin thing is interesting because as I understand it, our own physiological levels of melatonin are actually quite a lot lower than what someone who might be having sleep difficulties might then go and take a melatonin supplement, which might be in the realm of 10, 15 or 20 times greater than what we might actually have naturally produced. And then as I understand it, that will stay in your system. And maybe even people report waking up feeling groggy sometimes when they take melatonin, potentially sort of indicating that the melatonin has yet to leave their system. So I wonder what that might do to their sensitivity to sort of nutrients earlier on in the day that might not be considered. I don't know. I have read um, recently an article, and I don't recall all the details, but it it documented that an um, taking a you know a, a melatonin capsule actually interferes with the insulin action, so with your mm-hmm. body's ability to process the food. So I believe it was Frank Shearer's group at Harvard who did this work. So they had individuals come into a research laboratory setting take the melatonin, and then a little while later, eat a meal. And then they looked at the insulin secretion and the glucose, um, what they call the postprandial glucose. This is the glucose that is happening in your bloodstream after your meal. Uh, And they did that in a crossover design. So then in a different night, the participants would come in, eat the same thing at the same time, but not take the melatonin. Mm. Um, so So this exogenous melatonin is definitely working against you if you're going to eat at the same time that you take it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, now, um, yeah, it's a complicated story, but I would say that as much as we can control the melatonin through our own behaviors, and I can expand on that, then we can optimize our mel- the beneficial effects of melatonin um, without having to take exogenous melatonin. Yeah. So, for example, one easy thing is that melatonin is secretion is blocked by blue light. Yeah. So working, um, so sitting very, you know, having the television on at night, um, and I would say, you know, after eight, I don't know exactly what time it is. It probably varies yeah. for different people, but for most people, I'd say after eight, um, working on your laptop or you know, looking at your um, tablet or whatever device that you have, um, which mine is ringing right now. <laughs> Um, those all are emitting bright light, bright blue light into your straight into your eyes, and that's mm. how it signals. Wait, don't secrete the melatonin yet. Don't, because yeah. it's still daytime. Your brain thinks it's daytime. Yeah. So we can limit our blue light exposure. You can have there are settings on your laptop and your devices to reduce the blue blue light um, emittance after a certain time. Um, you can also buy blue light blocking goggles. They look like safety goggles. Yeah. And um, so these are really good to wear in the nighttime if you're going to be exposed to blue light. I don't advocate wearing those during the day. Mm. During the day, our body needs to know it is the day. Yeah. <laughs> so you want the blue light to come in. Um, I think having um, what my light study folks tell me, researchers tell me, is that if you have a, a very bright exposure to blue light in the morning, that's a really strong signal to tell your brain this is morning yeah. and such that the blue light at night doesn't affect you as much. Yeah, yeah, interesting. But if you're in dim light most of the time, like in Phoenix, 
in the summer, yeah, we don't go outside <laughs> very much. <laughs> it's so darn hot, yeah, right? Yeah. So I would love to do a study in Phoenicians to see um, whether our circadian rhythm is uh, perturbed and melatonin secretion is perturbed in the summertime because we aren't getting that bright light. But you don't have to be in the light. You can be sitting next to a bright window and get that. Yeah, it's interesting. My husband is seems almost impervious to to bright light at night and he's you know he can watch tvs on his phone we have those led lights at home that just you know mm-hmm. are really bright whereas i am um an absolute fanatic at turning off all the lights at wearing my blue light blocking glasses and and doing the Perfect. things because i am i think quite sensitive to those signals of light and and you know you mentioned there might be some individual variation in 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 yeah. sort of the time and i I think that we are, like in our house, good examples of that individual variation. Yeah. My um, uh, collaborator, Sean Kane, who is over in your part of the world, up, oh. up a bit. So he's in Melbourne, Australia. He has shown that there is a lot of variabil- inter-individual variability on the sensitivity of light. And this might have to do with some variations in our DNA sequences. Um, oh, so that, that's also a factor. It, I'm like yeah. you. I'm very sensitive to the light. Yeah, but I didn't know it. I mean, it was only ten years ago I recognized it because of my circadian biology friends that told me about the blue light blocking goggles, and I put those on, yeah, and I was yeah. like, "Sleep." <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it's I. I also notice with me, I get a, a. It might almost be a psychological switch as well. When I put them on, I immediately feel tired, and I wonder whether it's that it's part of a routine that that tells my brain it's time to. Yeah, I don't know. You know, well, clearly I'm not measuring anything, but I just know, like for myself, as soon as I put them on, it's it is. It's like the lights are out. It's interesting. <laughs> um, Dorothy, can we go back to your? Um, you were describing where that breast cancer research trial. So you mm-hmm. you were working with the well data. What, can you just describe sort of the next progress or the next sort of transition into another study? Yeah. So after that, um, Ruth Patterson um, led a pilot study in overweight, obese, postmenopausal women at Moore's Cancer Center, UCSD. And I was not part of this trial, but um, um, more so in um, some data development that we're doing on it. But um, so it was in 10 women, you know, in La Jolla, high socioeconomic status in it. The women loved it. They were very successful. They were successful. It was only one month intervention. So it was really just to see if women Mm. would do that. Is it something practical? Um, They were asked to fast for 12 to 14 hours and eat no later than 8 p.m. And and it worked out great. So then we Mm. then Ruth and others said, well, we need to test whether women who are of lower socioeconomic status, whether the and different family dynamics, whether this works. So we collaborated with Linda Gallo at UC San UC um, sorry not UC uh, San Diego State University just right down the freeway, and they uh, are working with a large uh, a large Latino population in the South mm-hmm. County of San Diego County. So they recruited ten um, overweight obese Latino women who had to be Spanish speaking. They didn't have to prefer Spanish, but they had to be Spanish speaking. And they loved it too. And they were successful like 93% of the nights Mm. uh, doing the fasting regimen. And Mm -hmm. they reported, all the women reported that they would recommend it to a friend, that it was um, the Latina women said that their husbands loved it because they weren't asking their husband to eat 
low calorie foods. They, they, yes. Their wife would just stopping eating at a certain time. They could continue to eat whatever they wanted. So it was something that was very easy for them to, for all of the women to, yeah. to, um, to apply. And this is very promising because um, there's a lot of barriers for weight loss and, and diets. You know, there's some, sometimes you have to buy expensive foods, you know, the keto diet, you have to buy expensive food products. You have to read labels and count calories. Um, and in this case, with the intermittent fasting, specifically prolonged fasting over the night, there's no need for that. Mm. In the mice, they eat the same poor food <laughs> and they have yes. metabolic benefit. Now, one thing that's important to note as far as weight loss is that, that this is one of the more common outcomes that individuals are wanting to see. When we get on the scale, we mm -hmm. want to see a smaller number. And if we don't, mm -hmm. whatever we're doing is probably not working. <laughs> but in yeah. fact, there can be changes going on inside your body where you may be maybe even reducing your fat mass, but maybe your muscle mass is getting bigger. But weight loss is just not a good metric of metabolic health. Yeah. Uh, and it's not the absolute measure. So, for example, in the mice, when we what we do is we fatten up the mice first, and then we split them, and we do time-restricted feeding or not. And the mice, in the time-restricted feeding, they lose just a little bit of calories, a little bit of weight, a little bit. Mm. Um, they eat the same number of kilocalories every day. Mm. They just mm. do it in a shorter period of time. Mm. And But when we sacrifice the mice and we measure what's happening in their blood and in their liver and their adipose tissue, there are huge changes. The mm. fat in the liver is melting away. The insulin circulating insulin levels are low. I mean, the benefit is um, the magnitude of the benefit is far exceeding the magnitude of their weight loss. Mm. So when you say that the women really loved it, if they didn't see an appreciable sort of drop in their weight, what were the, some of the benefits that they described? So they were only asked to do it for a month, mm. <laughs> um, and uh, the, some did lose weight, um, but on average of the 20, they, you know, there was a non-significant loss of um, one kilo. Mm -hmm. So um, they said that it was easy. They said that they could fast for more than 12 hours, that that was not challenging. Um, we gave them a, two different intervention modalities, a telephone counseling once a month where they actually mm -hmm. talk to a live person or an app where every day they enter in just an SMS texting start mm. fast, stop fast. They really liked that. Um, they, all of them said they would recommend it to a friend. Yeah. Um, and 90% said they found it somewhat pleasant. That's interesting. And, and maybe like as a clinician, I speak to a lot of people about, about their diet and about their eating behaviors. And, and sometimes at night, it's a real struggle to stop eating of your own accord in part maybe because a lot of women who are looking for weight loss, they might have a very extended fast, so they might not start start eating until, say, lunchtime, yet mm -hmm. despite the, the calories being similar or despite being satisfied with a the meal, they'll continue to eat because they're not actually satisfied. So they get they feel full at a meal time, but they're not quite satisfied. Um, and so yeah. it might be difficult for them sort of to eat of to stop eating just by thinking, oh, I really need to stop eating. But with this approach, if they're told to stop eating at eight, then they're not going to feel as sort of, I don't know, bloated or full that you can feel if you're not really in control of your food, the way a lot of people sort of mm -hmm. describe. I don't know. Mm -hmm. So one benefit that we um, 
it, this is purely anecdotal mm. uh, a little bit. But in the well study, we noticed that the women who were fasting for at least 13 hours or longer, they got longer sleep. Yeah. Interesting. Now, whether that's the women who were sleeping more, ate less at night, you know, yeah. we don't really know. It's just an association. However, um, I have talked about this a lot yeah. with people and then people will try it. And I don't mention the sleep. And they come back to me and they say, oh, my God, my sleep is so much better. Yeah, interesting. So yeah. if individuals are getting better sleep and maybe they're not losing as much weight, but they're getting better sleep, you know, that might be a motivator. But but truly in the weight loss arena, and I'm sure you understand this, if the if the patient or participant isn't losing weight and they think they're going to, then they get disappointed and disheartened. Um, yeah. yeah. So it is a challenge. Like, how do you? especially at this um, recent workshop where we were talking about adherence. So the way you get people yeah. to adhere is when they, they feel like they're being really successful. And so if mm. their clothes are fitting differently, they love that. They want to keep doing what they're doing. Um, yeah. However, I do think that um, th- a participant might feel different even if they weren't weighing less. Yeah, for sure. Um, so and- for example, I had a weight loss study where my participant lost 15 pounds of fat. Wow. But her total body weight did not change. And so she had to get new clothes. Yes. But she was still really disappointed that she didn't lose weight. She was really disappointed. And I even showed her her DEXA scan. I said, look at, here's your fat mass. Look how much fat you lost. And I had a little model of fat, little plastic. I said, this is how much fat you lost. She goes, I know, but I weigh the same. Isn't that so interesting? So I think we're conditioned. <laughs> yeah, we really are. And I feel, you know, so many of the people that I speak to, they feel out of control with their food. And and I'm not suggesting that this meat, this will then result in binging all the time and, and unable to control themselves around food, but they sort of just feel like nothing they do works. And then they try really hard. They try really hard, but nothing, you know, nothing shifts on the scale or their quote unquote good to then lead to overeat. But then that just psychologically for them it, it's it's just a struggle so mm-hmm. maybe it's the sense mm-hmm. of control that someone can have in and around an eating window you know if they focused on that then they build confidence yeah. I suppose because I think a lot mm-hmm. of people don't feel that confident when it comes to their ability to um to eat in a way that's good for them yeah right so just the empowerment of mm. having control I like that yeah so Dorothy I like that. What can we say then about um, breast cancer survival and, and eating windows? Like from the research that you've done, have there been any public health recommendations or anything that you could, we could now recommend people try? I think that the evidence is still lacking to make public health recommendations, you know, yeah. um, like governmental level ones. But I would say um, from from what we can tell, and we are doing studies actually in metastatic breast cancer patients, mm. they are doing it. It is safe. In you know type 2 diabetic patients, it's safe. Mm-hmm. Um, there doesn't seem to be any reason not to for most people. Yeah. But I would say if you have a metabolic, if a patient or a person has a metabolic condition um, for which they are under the care of a physician, then I would definitely consult with a physician, with the physician before I would try it. But, um, you know, routinely we're asked to fast overnight before we go in for routine blood tests. I mean, this is really nothing new. 
Um, But it may be new for people. You know, there are some people that we've had in our studies, um, a couple in another one where we have cognition as an outcome. Mm. Um, Every night they would eat all night in front of the TV and then have some ice cream before they go to bed. Yeah. So um, they loved, they loved the intervention. And it, yeah. and we don't have their data yet, but we are very excited to look at what happened with that couple. <laughs> yeah, um, that'd yeah. be super interesting. And and, and yes. when I think about how people might eat across, you know, the day, and I and listeners may have heard me sort of describe this before. Like sometimes, you know, people do get up at six o'clock and they grab their cappuccino, and then they're sitting down to a cup of tea and a couple of biscuits at like 8.30 p.m., you know, so that we know that that eating window is extended for a lot of our population. So the fact right. that we don't have to go to a 16.8 or a 24 uh, in order to see benefits from fasting, I think is um, really encouraging for people who um, are sort of who cannot do that sort of 16.8 or it doesn't work, doesn't work for them. Yeah. I mean, you know, we really don't know what the sweet spot is, mm. but even in the mice, they have benefits with just 12 hours of fasting. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know why the mouse people ended up at 16.8. And then I think the media just glommed onto that. It's mm. working for the mouse, 16.8. So then everybody started doing 16.8 on their own. And then these little pilot studies are coming out. And for a long time, you know, clinical research takes a lot of money yeah. <laughs> and time. And so what is coming out in the literature and humans now are these very, very small studies um, that are probably not um, what we say statistically as powered to, to conclusively say something is working or not working. Um, so I think mm. uh, there are some larger studies funded now. Um, I have one with uh, Dr. Julie Pendergast at UC, uh, at the University of Kentucky, where we have 164 postmenopausal overweight obese women in a two-arm trial so that is a large trial where 20 people is not you know that may be what you can afford because your institution will give you enough money to do that but really you need that big funding to be able to do the large studies that will definitively tell us um, whether the intervention is working and then ultimately um, we can't test all parameters like um, so the epidi- so for example, we can't afford to do a study where these people are going to eat for six hours, these are going to eat for eight, these are going to eat for 10, and these are going to eat for 12, and then compare. I yeah. mean, you'd have to enroll thousands of people to have enough statistical power to compare those conditions. Yeah. But the epidemiological studies that we've been doing, they give you a, they give you a hint because you're looking at thousands of individuals. You're mm. not intervening on them, but you can start to see when things tip to, you know, Eating after this time is not good. Eating before this time. Or we've shown that if you eat less than 30% of your calories after 6 p.m., you're much better off metabolically than if you eat 30% or more of your kilocalories at night. Yeah. Again, we don't want to, I hesitate to get into calorie counting because that adds complicated thinking processes, especially at night when, you know, you're like, yeah. I'm just tired and I've, you know, got home from work and I want to eat. So, um, so this is, again, why I think I think there are other regimens that could work, like maybe if you just eat less than 30% of your calories, maybe if you just had a salad, mm. maybe it's different. And, and I believe that those things would work, but I think yeah. for a broader swath of individuals to make recommendations, I think the fasting is just, it works, it seems it yeah. works, and it's much more feasible, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, absolutely. And it's, 
it's simple. It's just not eating rather than mm-hmm. special foods. You're right. Or the calorie exactly. counting and the, yeah, mental gymnastics. And another encouraging thing, there's a couple of encouraging things from the mouse studies that I wanted to, to share. And that is that, um, in Sachin Panda's work, initial work, uh, he had a postdoctoral fellow that was working in the lab who um, um, didn't want to come in on the weekend <laughs> to uh, change the mouse food supply. And so when you do these studies, you have to initially in the beginning, we, we have fancy cages now, but um, you had to actually take the food away from the mouse or move the mouse from one cage that had the food to a cage it didn't have. So it's some hands-on maneuvering every 16 hours, you know, you're doing this. So um, he said, well, what if the mice had the weekend off? Mm. So mice can eat the food whenever they want to on the weekend and then just do the time-restricted feeding on Monday through Friday. And the mice had a metabolic benefit. So as a clinical researcher, it it makes me feel this is so promising for humans. And in fact, in our intervention, we actually give our participants a day off. So they can they can do the fasting for six days a week, and they can pick whatever they they want, and they don't have to do yeah. the time restricted feeding. Interestingly, what we're finding in the breast cancer uh, patients, metastatic breast cancer patients, they don't they usually don't take the day off. They mm. keep doing the fasting for seven days. So it's really yeah. striking. Um, that is, and I wonder whether that it's you know with that population, they're so much more in tune maybe with health behaviors that could impact on their you are absolutely right yeah breast cancer is some of the most compliant research subjects you can have yeah I can imagine yeah absolutely um absolutely Dorothy I know that also that you have your your more recent work has been looking at sedentary behavior and sitting time and can you just share a little bit with us sort of what your what your research interest is there and and also what you're finding because obviously you know in these post post-COVID times um, in New Zealand here, we're just coming out of um, some restrictions uh, and potentially getting back to somewhat normal. Uh, But, you know, life has changed for a lot of people and they haven't even, a lot of people haven't really thought about it in that, you know, their whole working environment has shifted from a big campus to their home office. Um, mm-hmm. They're sitting a lot more with work and and then sedentary behavior. Uh, sorry, uh, sedentary leisure time and things like that. So, can you just chat to me a little bit about that? Sure. So, if you think about your body, so you're doing good. You're standing. I'm sitting. <laughs> when you sit, um, I want to think about the angles, the right angles at your knee and the right angles at your hip. And imagine your circulatory system. So your blood is going through these hoses, right, through your legs, through through your hip at a 90-degree angle, and then now to your knee at a 90-degree angle. What happens when the blood is flowing like that is that you have this kind of what we call turbulent flow. So if you can imagine a river mm. uh, that has a fork in it, the river, you have that, that's where you have the rapids and, and turbulent flow of that water. So the thing, same thing is happening in the blood in our bloodstream, and this, these areas are where atherosclerosis is going to happen. Mm-hmm. But aside from that, um, when you're sitting for extended periods of time, you have this extended period of time with the turbulent flow of your blood, and what that leads to is an inefficient delivery of nutrients to the tissues in the lower part of your body. Mm. So probably your upper body is fine, except for your heart isn't beating very hard, um, but you have this turbulent flow and inefficient delivery of nutrients. 
and inefficient delivery of insulin, the hormone insulin. Mm. So if you have a meal and then you just sit the whole time after the meal, then you know your insulin is getting secreted in the circulation. It needs to get into uh, the tissues to uh, have the muscle in your body take up the glucose. So we have a blood flow problem at, with sitting and we have delivery of nutrients, um, including um, insulin and yeah. oxygen. Yeah. So what we observe is that individuals who spend a lot of time sitting, um, specifically sitting, not just being sedentary, but sitting, have um, higher risk for um, cardiometabolic diseases like cardiovascular disease and diabetes, but also um, different types of cancer mm. and increased risk of all-cause mortality. So when we started thinking about the mechanisms, we started thinking about these right angles and mm. um, what might be going on in the tissues and how how then can we address the sitting, the problem of sitting? How do we intervene on that in a way that will be effective? So we uh, got some money from our institution to do a pilot study, and now we have a, um, a very large grant supported by the National Institute of Aging to study ways, um, again, we're focusing on postmenopausal overweight obese women, so women who are at risk for breast cancer, uh, as well as cardiometabolic disease. Um, we are looking at standing intervention. So um, initially, the sitting research field was having folks get on a treadmill. Well, I don't have room for a treadmill in my office, <laughs> you know, or your home office. You don't have that yeah. even your office at work. My 86-year-old mother cannot get on a treadmill, right? So standing, if that would work uh, to improve the glucose and the insulin um, um, exposures, uh, during the day, then that would be a benefit for these uh, disease risk factors. Mm. So in our uh, research study, we tested this and we showed that a uh, two-minute stand every 20 minutes was extremely promising at reducing um, the glucose over the span of the entire day. Mm. Um, our p-value didn't quite make significance, but it was a little pilot study of 10 ladies. Uh, now we're looking at 78 women in our study, which we're going to wrap right. up this summer. We also have a way, and so the glucose and insulin um, look very promising for just these simple, literally to just stand up for two minutes and then they sit down. They don't move away from the chair. There's wow. no walking, no marching, nothing. Um, we also want to look at the vasculature. So how are the arteries responding to these standing breaks? And so we had a condition that was in a 10-minute stand once an hour. Mm -hmm. And when the women did that, and mind you, this is a single day, mm -hmm. they do that five times, so 10-minute stand once an hour for five hours, their vascular function actually improved in a single day. Oh, wow. So making these changes in your sitting behaviors are going to do you good right away. Yeah. You're going to do good that day. Uh, so I find it very inspiring. Um, so think about that. It's, it motivates me. Yeah. Like I don't have to do it for two weeks and then I'm starting to see a benefit. Yeah. Um, I will see it that same day. No, I appreciate that because um, I remember seeing, and I can't recall the details, very vague, I'm sorry, um, studies from a few years ago looking at the metabolic or the energy cost of standing versus sitting in. As I understood it, it wasn't actually that different whether or not you're sort of just standing here or you're sitting. So sort of the mm -hmm. conclusion of, of that particular research was, well, you know, it, it's probably good to just shift it up a little bit. Like don't stand um, the entire day. Don't sit the entire day. Whereas what yeah. you've just described is quite a quite clear benefits outside of the energy cost. Like just that 
the vasculature, like in the change in your hormones. Um, that's quite remarkable, really. Yeah. It's um, when we first started doing the research, I was reading um, a lot of research from NASA, actually, and they were talking about what happens to our bodies when we just stand up. Mm. So for one, you have to engage a lot of muscles just to do that. Yeah. Once you get there, you're kind of stable. Yeah, yeah. But you have to get up there. Um, so you're engaging your muscles and then gravity is pulling the blood down to your lower extremities. So yeah. within milliseconds, you're improving the circulation in your lower extremities. Your heart rate changes, your blood pressure changes in milliseconds of standing. Yeah. So there's really a lot of physiological things that are happening just with a simple stand. Yeah. So interesting. And this, see, and I think what I'm, you know, from your research and looking at some of the stuff that you are collaborating on, these are all really quite practical, easy lifestyle shifts that might really make quite a difference for people who, who are at risk of those metabolic diseases. And I know that you're primarily looking at sort of overweight, obese women um, in some of your clinical trials, but there's no reason why other populations wouldn't benefit from this as well. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Dorothy, so everything that we've sort of discussed, what would be like three take-homes that you, you might like people to get from just sort of your body of work and the things that you're working on? What I would say is that small changes can have powerful effects on our health outcomes over our lifespan. And so little changes that you can make that you can sustain over a long forever, <laughs> theoretically, um, are worth doing. And I think that mm -hmm. um, oftentimes society makes us think that we need to make these drastic changes. And then those are really hard to um, contemplate and to be successful in. And I think they're not necessary. So, for example, just restricting the time that you eat to be at least 12 hours is not unreasonable. Um, and you can mm. pick your time. You know, you don't want to eat too late at night, so you wouldn't want to stop at 10 p.m. and go at 10 in the morning, but you stop at 8. Um, and then, you know, if you want to go out on a Saturday night and eat late and have a glass of wine with your friends, um, then do that. But for the most part, practicing this um, fasting period during the nighttime um, I, I believe the evidence is um, accumulating that this is going to show long-term benefit for you mm. in a lot of ways, whether it's cancer-related or, um, or cardiometabolic disease-related. Um, and then another small change is, you know, when you're standing up, you don't have to get up and run up the stairs. All, or when you're sitting for a long period of time, you don't have to do really ex extended exercise. You don't even have to leave your desk. You can just stand up. Mm. You can stand up during meetings. I stand up during meetings. When we used to have meetings in person, you know, people would look at me, wait, why are you standing? And I would say, well, you know, I'm a sitting researcher, like, oh, okay. So <laughs> <laughs> you can just stand up. And so I'd look at my watch in a meeting and, you know, you probably get there, let's say, at 10 o'clock in the morning and at 1030, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to stand for like 10 minutes and yeah. then I'll sit back down. Yeah. Um, people get used to it. Um uh, when I'm driving for long periods of time, you know, I try to take breaks and stand up for 10 minutes. So I kind of have this 10 minute thing in my head. Nice. So these are small changes. If you can get a standing desk and move your whole computer up, great. Yeah. But you don't need to have that. Um, just a two minute stand. You can still see your computer screen. You might be able to type out an email while you're standing and then sit down. Yeah, nice. So I think, um, and we don't know if, you know, if two minute stand is better than 10 minute stand. Maybe do a little bit of both. Um, and do what fits into your schedule and that you can regularly practice. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. And, and I think 
you know, as, you know, oftentimes, and maybe it's media, social media, we, we look for almost extreme um, solutions to what might seem like our sort of, you know, um, like quite big problems, but probably it is just, yeah, these simple shifts can over time make yeah. big differences. Dorothy, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And I'll pop links to the studies in the show notes for people who are interested to go and explore more. And um, yeah, and thank you for the work that you're doing in this space. It's it's always so, uh, to see this research come out is just, um, it's great. It's really interesting and, and, and it's stuff that we can use clinically as well, which is always really good. Lovely. Thanks so much. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed talking with you so much. Okay, peeps, hopefully you enjoyed that. She was such a wealth of information and also just super down to earth and practical about what people can do. And there are some definitive take homes that you can take from this podcast and actually action, which I really liked. And I really enjoyed our conversation around the time restricted eating because so many people struggle to understand what is enough to help with their overall disease risk profile. And Dorothy does research in this, so she is a bit of an expert. Next week, on the podcast, I am talking to Dr. Joe Mather from the Ruscio Clinic, all about gut health, functional testing, and what's worth paying money for, and probiotics. So Dr. Joe is one of the clinical leads in the Michael Ruscio Clinic, and Mike Ruscio is quite a renowned expert in the gut health area, as is Joe. So I'm super excited to bring to you that conversation. Until then, though, peeps, you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, over on Instagram and Twitter at Mickey Willardin, or over on my website, mickeywillardin.com, where in addition to joining the waitlist for Monday's Matter Autumn Edition, dropping Monday, 2nd of May, cart opens for that this Sunday, you can also book a one-on-one -on -one consult with me. All the information is on my website. You guys have a fantastic week. Look forward to catching up with you soon. See you later.